right, it's good to see everybody here this evening and thankful for you. Turn, if, if you will, to Exodus chapter 12. Yeah, 12. We're going to start really kind of at verse 29 in Exodus chapter 12. Thankful for Stephen, excited about the Engage 2023 uh, workshop. Please be a part of that. Now, Stephen said some things in there that are important. Uh, we would love to have you sign up to, to, to let us know you are coming to this. We have ample places for you to sign up. Um, but some of y'all, when he says things like app and website, some of y'all that were born... Not necessarily in the late 1900s, but more in the mid-1900s. You can just call the church office and say, hey, put me down on the list. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and use your rotary phone to call the church office and say, can y'all put me on that list for that workshop deal? And they will do it, okay? Does that make sense to everybody? That'll help. That'll get all of our bases covered in this spot. And so uh, really thankful for Stephen. I'm excited about this opportunity and the vision as we consider what's coming for us. Uh, looking at Exodus chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 29. going to try to uh, continue there and make some way through. And really, I'm going to try to get through the middle part of chapter 13. And so um, looking, looking forward to this. Last week, we discussed the 10th plague and so uh, the, we saw how uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and told him to let my people go, right? And when he told him to let them go, Pharaoh said, no, won't do it. And so ultimately we saw how God then through the plagues demonstrated his superior power and authority over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And so he demonstrated that. And is anybody hear that kind of a buzzing feedback a little bit? Do y'all hear that or is it just me? Good. I'm just making sure y'all don't hear it. I'll deal with it. That's fine. I just make sure y'all. I don't want to distract y'all from what I got to say. You know what I'm saying? I want to make sure you got zero excuses tonight from listening to the preacher. So God told Pharaoh and then Pharaoh saying no, God continued to demonstrate his power and authority over not only Pharaoh, but the gods of Egypt. He basically dismantled the entire worldview system of Egypt through these plagues, letting him know that you're not in charge, I am in charge, that these people are mine. And so the theme throughout this section of Scripture has been God saying, I'm going to make myself known. You're going to know me. And so these have revealed his power and authority to the Egyptians and the Israelites. And through this process, he has shown and demonstrated his particular love for his people, the Israelites, protecting them from the plagues. And then in the 10th one, when the death angel comes for the firstborn, giving his people a way out. Here's what you do to redeem your firstborn so that the death angel does not come for them. 
And so last week, that's what we discussed, the gift that was given to, by God to his people to say, here's what you were to do. You are to pack your bags, you are to get dressed, you are to put on your sandals, you are to put your staff between your legs, get your knapsack packed. You're to go out and find the best lamb, which could be a goat or a sheep. You're to go out and find the best, in fact, the spotless lamb, and you are to sacrifice that lamb. You're to come in. You're to cook it. You are to eat it as a family together. What you don't eat, you are to burn. You're to take some of the blood. You're to put it over the doorposts. This will let us know that you have by faith trusted in the God that has come to redeem you and save you and given you a way out. So he did not say the death angel is not coming to you. He said he is coming, but, but here's your way out to find redemption and to save even your firstborn. So he gave them that opportunity. And so as he laid all of that out last week, we see in verse 28 of chapter 12, then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. In that sense, the obedience of the people of Israel had listened to God, obeyed him, and when the death angel comes, they find their firstborn saved. Not going to death, but protected by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, right? And so we left off there. We discussed that, and then we are going to move into verse 29. Really, verses 29 and 30 deal with the tenth plague, and in dealing with the tenth plague, they are the shortest of the passages dealing with the plagues. It's kind of interesting, and the other nine, they have these long, some eight to nine to ten, some even up to 15 verses, talking about what happened, talking about the discussion, but not this one. The tenth plague comes along, and it's just two verses, just two simple verses. Here are these two verses. That's all. The rest is kind of left up to our imagination of what happens, and it kind of demonstrates ultimately that the Lord, though judgment comes through death, he does not glory in it or revel in it. It simply says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Two verses, that's it. And the brutality of it, to think about it. Now remember, every one of the plagues came with a plea to Pharaoh to let the people go. Every single one of them, the Lord sends Moses back and says, will you do it now? Will you do it now? And up until this point, there has been no bloodshed in the plagues. Other than livestock, the people have been spared. They've dealt with flies. They've dealt with frogs. They've dealt with gnats. All of those are nasty. They've dealt with all those things, but death has not come yet, right? And, and, and Pharaoh had every opportunity again and again to turn and let the people go and recognize as the Lord makes himself known, Pharaoh needed to know that it is the Lord who owns these people, and that's his people, not mine. 
But Pharaoh believed he was the one who was the master over them. They were his slaves. They belonged to him. They were his property, and he wasn't going to let them go. And so God demonstrated over and over again his power. And as it tells us this, it says that the Lord hardened his heart. He stiffened him toward him, not so much as an activity that God is necessarily doing, although God takes full credit and responsibility there, but as a way of God saying in doing this that he continues, even through his power to demonstrate Pharaoh's hard-heartedness against the name of Yahweh and who he is. He continues that. He becomes more and more stubborn. It's kind of like in some sense how we see in the New Testament where Jesus continues to do miracle after miracle and sign after sign, yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees only get angrier and angrier and angrier. It's that same sense. His power only exposes their disbelief. His power only exposes their their lack of belief in him and their desire to be their own authority. And so it does here for Pharaoh. Over and over and again, until his heart is hardened, stiffened over against God, and God finally says, okay, the only way then for me to follow through with this is judgment of death. Judgment of death. And so the Lord comes And the firstborn of each household. Notice that last part of verse 30. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. The intensity of that for a moment. In one night, in one moment, there was not a house in Egypt where someone was not dead. The effects of sin, the wages of sin, the wages of turning away from God is death. And while you only have two verses here, it demonstrates to us the seriousness of it, the brutality of sin, what it brings and what it causes when we reject God and who he is, when he makes himself known and instead of following him, we turn from him. It shows that over and over again. But again, with only two verses, it is not the the Lord reveling in this. In fact, we'll see that in a minute. I just want to point out a couple things about these two verses. Here, ultimately, we have come full circle. Look back with me to chapter 2. Y'all have to flip in your Bible to chapter 2. Flip over. In chapter 2, right before the burning bush, Moses has left, of course, and he has gone to Midian, and, and the people were suffering under Pharaoh and his severity and oppression there as his slaves. And it says in chapter 2, during those many days, in verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Y'all remember we talked about those three words. He heard, he saw, he knew. God heard the people's cries under the slavery and bondage and oppression of Egypt. He saw their condition and he knew, he knew them as his own. And so God heard and saw and knew, and then it turns around and says, now God says to Moses, it's time for me to make myself known. I see the cries of my people under slavery and bondage. Now I'm going to make myself known to them. And so over the next few chapters, God makes himself known. And how does it end here after the 10 
plagues in chapter 12, it ends not with the Israelites weeping and crying. That's where it began. But now God has made himself known, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Y'all see the flipping here? His people were weeping and crying and calling for help. God responds to his people, redeems them out of their bondage of slavery, and those who put them in slavery, those who were oppressive to them, they're the ones now weeping as God has made himself known. I, I, don't, I think this becomes clear for us even in the text itself when we think through the New Testament. Because what does Jesus say about those who will spend eternity under the weight of their own sin and the wrath of God? God's sin comes to all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So sin's coming to everybody. But God has made a way for anybody who would believe to be redeemed from sin, the bondage of sin, through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that perfect lamb, that Passover lamb that was sacrificed on their behalf. If the blood of Christ is not on the doorpost of your house, but on the heart that you have within, right? You have been washed clean and protected from death. It's not coming for you. You have been saved from it. But all of those who reject that, that freedom that you get through the Passover lamb, all of them who reject are going to be under eternal punishment for the wages of sin is death. And what does God say about hell itself? Jesus says it is the place of what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We go from, go from rejoicing in this world to weeping in the next, rejoicing over against God's. So here you see even that picture of this. God's enemies, those who are opposed to him, are oppressing his people. They're causing them to weep. It is God who makes himself known. And so those who are his enemies will be the one who weeps in the end. Those who do not trust him will be the one who weeps in the end. And so here you see even that. The full circle has come, come through the power of God. The Israelites were crying under Pharaoh. Now the Egyptians are crying under the power of God in their own sinfulness. But notice in this, there's no Israelite celebration. Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh came to them. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said simply in verse 31, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Notice Pharaoh is transferring here in his own idea. He's transferring the ownership of Israel from himself to Yahweh. Here's the first time, by the way, Pharaoh actually uses the name Yahweh. He's recognizing Yahweh. He's recognizing as the one that Moses said sent him. You tell Yahweh, fine, they're yours. And so here he believed he was in charge of them. He was the one who was the master. He was the one who owned the Israelites. He's recognizing now he does not own them. The Yahweh does. And so he transfers their, uh, he transfers the ownership, if you will, from himself in his mind to Yahweh. The people of Israel go and serve the Lord. Don't serve me anymore. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Even here you see Pharaoh is recognizing the pain of the moment. There's not a house in Egypt that does not have somebody dead in it. And Pharaoh hears the cries of his people. He sees finally this is done. And even he says, bless me also. Now you may think Pharaoh finally repented. You're going to find out chapter 14, Pharaoh didn't repent. 
because when his whole workforce leaves, then he realizes he's got to do the work himself. And so he he goes after the people again and we'll have the Red Sea. But here Pharaoh is recognizing, throwing up his hands, recognizing before Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel, he has zero power. Take it. Bless me even. But notice what it says next. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. And Wouldn't you be too? Y'all hurry up. Y'all go ahead and go. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's go ahead and get out of here. It's like the people who have stayed too long. Y'all know those people in your house. Um, you have this, you know, you either have to tell some, sometimes you just have to tell people it's time to go or you just fall asleep right in front of them. Y'all know what I'm saying? And sometimes I've done both. I've done both. And, and you recognize that, that sometimes falling asleep is not the best thing to do or the kindest, the host thing to do, but it just happens. But sometimes it's just time to go. And here, that's exactly what happens, is they're saying, we've dealt with this, we've seen this, if we got to get these people out of the land, it is time to go. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead if you stay. They recognized they could not stand against the power of the God of Israel. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they uh, they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so ultimately the Lord's saying, if you're starting out on a journey, you need to have some funding for that journey, right? If you're going out somewhere, you got to have a plan. If you try to go on vacation and you don't have any money in the bank, you're not getting very far. And so ultimately the Israelites are leaving. They're getting out of the land they had been in for 400, we'll find out, in 30 years. They're leaving out of this. But what this line is, is they're saying, one, God has taken care of them by making himself known to Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh says, get out. Making himself known to the Egyptians in such a way that they say, you got to go. We cannot. We are not greater. We cannot stand up to your God. God has made himself known. And then... God has also worked in their hearts so as to say, not only go, but here, take my wedding ring when you go. Take my jewelry. Take whatever you need. And the scriptures tell us that was God himself that worked in their hearts to provide the needs of his people. God always works that way, by the way. God always works in the hearts of his people. How do we do ministry here in the life of our church? It's by God working in the hearts of our people to say we want to give in such a way that so we can advance the gospel. God works in our hearts to make our hearts generous, and so he did that even to the Egyptians. God shows his power. God shows his power in not only redeeming the the Israelites, but also in how he even can work over the Egyptians as well. But this language of plundering the Egyptians is a language of battle. So what happens to those who are victorious over those who lose? Those who are victorious get the plunder of war, right? 
the spoils of war. Here, the battle took place. God versus the gods of Egypt. God, the Yahweh, demonstrated his power and dismantled the entire place. He was victorious over Pharaoh and all others. So we'll see this later. When they go into the promised land, they conquered Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. They wrote a song about it. And they got to go in and get all the spoils of war for the people. It's how God provided even for them. And so here you see the same thing. There is victory and the spoils come to those who were victorious. And God's people, what did they do to be victorious? Trusted in God. That's it. They didn't pull out a sword. They didn't go to a battle. They didn't have to stab anybody. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They didn't have to come up with some sort of battle plan. They didn't have to figure it out. God's people were victorious, and God did it all for them. God's people were victorious, and God did it all. And because God's people were victorious through God's own power and work, they got the spoils of victory. Before we go too far, again, this points us directly to Jesus, right? Jesus came up out of the tomb with the spoils of victory. It wasn't in silver or gold. It wasn't that. Jesus came up out of the tomb with the keys to eternal life. And those who are victorious with Christ get the spoils of that victory, a life full of the blood. In fact, Paul puts it like this, that whenever we uh, come to Christ in salvation, we were dead in our trespasses. He's made us alive together with Christ, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he, which, which he loved us in Ephesians 2, made us alive together with Christ so that... Ephesians 2, 7, so that he can bestow on us, y'all remember what it says? The riches of heaven. So ultimately when God redeems his people, he does all the work. He does everything. He doesn't ask us to go to battle. He doesn't ask us to go to war for redemption. There's nothing we can do to even do it. God does it all. He goes to fight for us. He goes and takes on the enemy we cannot defeat. He goes and takes... The Israelites could have never defeated the Egyptians in this moment. Just like we could never in a million trillion years defeat death. But Christ did that for us. He went to the war. He won it. He came out victorious. And out of the grave, he came up with the spoils of victory. And so all of this points even to Christ Jesus. Moses, by the way, Jesus said, Moses was writing about me. It goes even to the deepest parts of these verses. Whenever he's saying here that those who are victorious in God get the spoils of victory, we all receive that through Christ Jesus our Lord. The blessings of heaven are bestowed upon those who believe. What is it that we are to do to receive those spoils? Simply believe. It's the same thing the Egyptians were to do. Now, belief is always action, right? Belief and action go together. You can't say you believe and not do something. Belief is a do word. And so belief is always action. For the, Egyptian, for the Israelites here in this time, belief just was them following what God said to do in obedience. Killing the Passover lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost, walking through the process. That was an act of belief. For us, belief is the action of putting our faith and trust in Christ and turning away from our sins and walking with him, right? That's the action. And for those who do that, then they do it with the spoils of victory as the Lord has saved us and redeemed us. 
to bestow on us his blessings. And so here, this victory is seen through the spoils of these things. And the people of Israel, verse 27, journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up from them, very much livestock, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. By the way, this dough is going to run out pretty soon. Y'all remember that? What's going to happen when the dough runs out? Hey, don't tell me. I'm going to read it myself. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Here we see the statement. And in Israel now is finally leaving Egypt. They're finally out. They've received victory through God as he has made himself known. And now in that victory, they have received the plunders of the victory and they are leaving out. And it even tells us about 600,000 men on foot. This leaving, Israel leaving Egypt fulfills a couple promises. One, it fulfills the promise of Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. If y'all remember Genesis 15, it's a couple years ago. Genesis 15, a promise is given to Abraham. And in verse 14, he says, he says there, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, speaking of Egypt at the time. Uh, I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The promise was given back to Abraham of exactly what happens. Here, God is fulfilling his promise. Not only is God making big promises that will be fulfilled ultimately and finally in Jesus, all of these promises are fulfilled along the way so as to testify to his faithfulness in the big ones. Does that make sense to everybody? The small promises of God testify to the faithfulness in the big promises of God. And here you see, he told them, you're going to be in slavery and bondage for some time, but I will bring you out with great possessions. And here the fulfillment has come. They have been brought out. They have been brought out. We also see the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 2. In Genesis 12, 2, he says, and this is, goes with those three promises, but in verse 2, he says, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Israel becomes the talk of the town, of the world at the time. Why? Because God said, I'm going to make myself known to all peoples. And through what he did with Egypt and in demonstration of this, he becomes known. People know who he is, and God blesses his people, and everyone sees the blessing of Yahweh on his people. But it's also we see the blessing of the nations. As God said, I will bless the nations through you. Notice what it says there in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. So it's not just the Israelites that are leaving, but others from other nations, a mixed multitude multitude are traveling with them saying, I want to be blessed by that God as well. And so you see the promises of God being fulfilled in the Exodus here in, these, in, the, in this way, always showing how God is faithful to every last jot and tittle of his promises. Ultimately then, we also recognize that as they leave up, they're leaving with 600,000 men. One of the difficulties in in looking at the Hebrew language is just the way you count people in essence. Now, my tendency, as you know, is to always trust what the Bible says. Why? Because the Bible's true. And so some people claim that's a lot of people. 
If you just count 600,000 men, then you're probably counting, those are all would be military age men, thinking and considering their power of how many they have. Then you're probably counting women and children and those younger as well. And so how many of that? You're looking at probably 2 million people. So 2 million people get up and leave that day. Now, granted, we're in Greenville, and I ain't been here long, but since I've been here, 2 million people have moved into town. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so what would it be like for those two million people to get up and leave? Now, if you just got here, we're happy you're here. I'm just joking. But you can think, even for us that day, that's a large number. And so some would say, if you have a column of people walking out, two million at one time, then that's going to take about two weeks just from the front to catch up with the back. You know what I'm saying? Then you got some animals and some other stuff. Here's what I'm telling you. I believe the Bible's true. And Israel was a great nation. And 600,000 people on that day left that place. And what I mean by that is that, by all means, is the day that their journey began to leave Egypt. And so ultimately, they're heading out, leaving this place, just as God has promised. And so what we see in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that same night is a night of watching to keep the Lord by all people, Israel, throughout their generations. We'll get to what they mean by that. But notice the intent here of this. It was 430 years. 430 years. Now, why... I can't stand, I shouldn't do it. No. So I, sometimes I'll ask y'all a question and I have got no intention for y'all to answer me. Y'all know what I'm saying? I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't necessarily want you to shout something out. I just kind of ask a question. Just know I'll give you the answer. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, if you want to come to me and say, I want to answer a question sometime, then that's fine. We'll do it after. But just know right now, why do you think 430 years is significant? Okay, good. None of y'all know. Or I scared you half to death, so as you didn't say anything. Perfect. It worked. My plan worked. Here's why. Do y'all know the length of time between the end of the Old Testament and the New? Does anybody know that length? 400 years, the Scripture tells us. And then if we say Jesus was born at the end of that time, from one time to another, do y'all know the time that Jesus comes up and begins to teach and walk on the earth? 30 years, right? The point here is this. Moses is going to tell us that there's one coming who's greater than I am. There's one deliverer coming who's more than me. And it's not a coincidence in this moment that it gives us this exact number to say it was 430 years exactly. God was silent for 400 years and then he brings out his deliverer to come for his people and he delivers them out of bondage of slavery and sin. So it will be again. That's why I believe the exodus for us is not just an event in history. It is a theological is a theological import for us to note that what God is doing here is he's given us a demonstration of what he's going to do later to redeem his people. Not from the bondage of slavery in, in, in Egypt, but from the bondage of slavery of sin. 
There's one coming who will be greater than Moses. And after 400 years of silence, he'll step up again and he will say, let my people go. But he's not just getting you out of slavery and bondage of of, of Egypt. He's going to deliver you from a greater slavery, a greater enemy than Pharaoh himself, the enemy of death and sin. He's going to defeat them. And he's going to come out with the spoils of victory when he exits the grave. All of this is pointing us to something. And that's why I tell y'all that the scriptures are not just this you know, group of stories that are just trying to teach us moral lessons. They're pointing us to something that God is doing in a glo- more glorious way. This is all just a brushstroke. Have I ever told y'all about Bob Ross, the painter? Yes, obviously. And so this is just another brushstroke in a painting where God is hitting brushstroke after brushstroke. And while you're just, if you were just to pick up the Bible and start reading here in Genesis and you got here to this, you're like, man, what's God up to? He's delivering his people. He's making himself known. He's powerful. He's all those things. But if you started in John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, you'll come back and recognize that you can never read the Bible the same way twice. Every time you come to a story knowing that Christ Jesus is the center of it, every time you come to a story in the Old Testament, you realize that's pointing me to Jesus. I don't preach the, uh, you don't preach this as just just moral lessons here. I'm not trying for y'all to say, hey, be like the Israelites and go put blood on the doorpost. That's not what I'm trying to tell y'all to do. What I'm telling you is you preach this as theological treatises that point you to a Savior who has come for you to redeem you and save you. The point is we're the the Israelites in some ways. We're helpless here under the bondage of sin. We can't deliver ourselves unless God delivers us, unless he sends a rescuer, a deliverer on our behalf. And he has through his son, Christ Jesus. And so what does the institution of the Passover do? He comes and he says, every single year, you are to have this event. You are to commemorate this event. Why? It was catechismal, if you will. You are teaching when you come to the Passover. It was to be a a, a remembrance, if you will. It's a teaching opportunity. The Passover was to be for Israel a reminder of what God has done. You put it on the calendar. You do it every year. And every year you come back and you say, you remember when he delivered us. You remember when he came for us. You remember when he saved us out of slavery and sin. You remember when he raised up Moses. You remember when he provided for us that Passover lamb. Do you remember that? He will do it again. So it's a teaching moment for the life of Israel to remind them, remind them of God's faithfulness, to remind them of that, a worshipful event placed on their liturgical calendar every year to remind them of this event and to consider God as their Redeemer. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. God is defining his community. These are my people. My people are the ones I've redeemed. My people are the ones who partake in this event who partake in this Passover. He's defining these people. It builds on God's earlier covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Only those. These are my people. Here's what my people look like. Those who are circumcised and who partake in this Passover, who are a part of this. Those are my people. Passover is about the creation of Israel as a holy nation. The Passover recalls how God answers to himself uh, in every way, how he redeems his people. It points them to that and teaches them that. And then it goes down. Chapter 13, not only does he institute the Passover, he is going to do something else. He says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now this is a consecration of the firstborn that belongs to God. And in so doing then, he institutes another feast, the feast of the unleavened bread. Now, for God to stop in the middle of this narrative, right, of how he redeems his people from Egypt, for him to stop and say, I want y'all to put the Passover together and I want you to have this feast of unleavened bread, it's demonstrating the importance of these events. As Moses is, is writing this, as his people are being defined into a community now that belongs to God, as he's writing this to teach them, he's putting, God is putting these here through Moses' pen to demonstrate the importance of them. He's stopping to say, these events that just happened are massive and they're massively important and here's what I want you to learn from them in every way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach those who come after him. And why does he consecrate to me all the firstborn? Whatever is the open womb, whichever one opens the womb among the people. Moses says, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your father to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. God is telling his people that not only did I bring you out, I don't want you to forget it. I don't want you to forget it. So he sets up on the liturgical calendar of the people of Israel time every year to remember these moments. Don't forget what I have done. Teach it to your children. Teach it to those who come after you. Remind them of my deliverance of you. And in some ways, in some ways, that's exactly why we continue to gather every single week as believers. Do y'all know, and I, I, maybe I've said this before so y'all know it, so y'all are educated, but but. Y'all know why we meet on Sunday morning, right? Does anybody know why we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week? That's the day Jesus rose from the grave. So in other words, the gathering together of the saints weekly on the first day of the week is a reminder and a celebration of the victory of Christ Jesus over death and sin. Does that make sense to everybody? That's why we gather. We gather to celebrate the resurrection. 
We gather to remind ourselves that God is alive. And so here you even see on the calendar of the Israelites, they have these things to gather together to remind them of what God has done and celebrate what he's given to them. And so here these reminders are in place for those reasons. And when the Lord brings you into land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall give it, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord that first, uh, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Getting rough there, didn't it? Every firstborn of a man among your sons shall you redeem. And when in time to come to your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and your frontlets between your eyes, for a strong hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now what does this mean? This giving, this consecration of the firstborn, if you will, to God. Why is it here and what does it mean? I give us just two simple things, I believe. First is this. It's the symbolic nature of the relationship between Israel and God himself. In other words, it's them belonging to Israel, to, to Yahweh. They belong to him. And if I put it that way, what Yahweh, what God has redeemed from death belongs to him. Here, that's what he says ultimately. He has taken the firstborn of Israel and he has redeemed them through the sacrificial land. And what God redeems belongs to God. What God saves, what he gives a ransom for is his. It belongs to him. He redeems it, therefore it is his. It is his. And so the Lord is giving a demonstration that all he redeems belongs to him. Belongs to him. We see this, by the way, in the life of Jesus himself. Remember when Jesus goes to Simeon? Y'all remember that? Uh, Jesus didn't go there. He was an infant, so his mama took him. And when his mama takes him to Simeon, you remember in Luke chapter 2 what Simeon said. Here, Jesus becomes one who belongs to God in this sense. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon says, uh, make sure I got my verses right, in verse 22, Simeon says, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, parenthetical statement, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In other words, this purification moment that Simeon is a part of as the, as the one in the temple, they're bringing Jesus because of this, of what happened in Exodus chapter 13. Mary... Jesus is the one who first opens her womb. Therefore, they are giving Jesus over to God. He belongs to him as his one. And there, that's, that's where that comes from. And notice what Simeon says. Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon sees this one. He's looking at an infant baby. And he says, that's the one who's fulfilling all the promises of God. That's the one. The Lord is given over in consecration. But not only that, Jesus is not just the firstborn from the womb of Mary. Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation, as Colossians 1.15 tells us. Now, if y'all are not familiar with Colossians 1, 
You need tonight to get familiar with such a thing. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing, and you can almost see how Paul is speaking, and he gets carried away. I can't read Colossians 1 without getting, you, you know how you start reading something, you start reading faster? Y'all, know, y'all ever do that? Whatever. I'm just doing it. And he says, verse 13, he has delivered us, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul wants to tell us, let me remind you who this beloved son is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And he keeps on going. He's making sure we know. But what does... Paul mean when he says he's the firstborn of creation. There was never a time when Jesus, who is God, was ultimately born. We recognize when he came as a man, he was born through Mary, but he is eternal. And so some people have taken this the wrong way. The firstborn, in this sense, is the one who's preeminent above all and who is strictly given over to God and is consecrated to him. And so when he says he's the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn is the one who receives the inheritance. And so here, all of creation now belongs to him. This consecrated one to God, all of creation. When you read that firstborn, here's how the scriptures go together. It's like my old professor used to tell me in seminary, we paid him a lot of money to teach us. And every time we asked him a question, his response was, you need to read your Bible more. And I was like, well, I thought that's what you were for, right? (laughs) Aren't you supposed to tell me what it says? No, just keep reading your Bible. Well, read your Bible and you find out that firstborn is going back here to Exodus chapter 13 as a possession and belonging to God. And because Jesus is the firstborn, he is the one who will receive the blessing of all of creation. He's the one who receives the inheritance. It's his. But not only that, he's not just the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Look at verse 18. He says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, as he has in everything, he is preeminent. He is not only the inheritance of creation, he's also the one who has conquered death. By him being the firstborn from the dead, the first one to overcome death through his resurrection, he now is the one who holds life and death in his hands. All of creation is his. All of life and death is his. It's all in his hands. He's above it all because the firstborn is the one who belongs to God. And God has chosen in his infinite sovereignty to give the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, all authority under heaven and earth. He's received it. This possession comes then as showing that the firstborn belongs to God. What he redeems belongs to him. And so if we are redeemed, we too belong to God. But not only that, it's also a declaration of God's faithfulness. It's a demonstration of God's possession of his people through his redemption, but a declaration of his faithfulness. Not only is he redeeming them, but he says, you tell God. You tell your sons, 
And you tell your son's sons. And you tell your other sons exactly who I am and what I've done. And every time you demonstrate or every time you practice or every time you, you, you uh, uh, take these Passover and the unleavened bread feast and you do those, you're reminding the next generation and the next generation that God has redeemed us and we belong to him. He's faithful. Yahweh is not only laying claim to the firstborn here, but laying claim to all the future generations that come in his name, trusting him, following after him. This becomes a testimony of God's faithful possession. He's the one who redeems, therefore we belong to him. If God has redeemed you, you belong to him. And if it bothers you to say you belong to God, then you haven't been redeemed by him. If it bothers you to say, I'm a, I'm a slave, as Paul says, a doulos, you know, a, a bondservant to the Lord. He has saved me and redeemed me. Therefore, I owe him everything that I can give him. My life, my breath, my talents, my gifts, my finances, all of it belongs to him because he has saved me. If it bothers you to say that, then you don't know the salvation of God himself. Because what's greater What's greater here than all the possessions of this world is the love, so amazing, so divine, that has redeemed us from our sin. You realize, man, there's no price I wouldn't pay to be saved from my sin, and there's nobody else who can save me from my sin but Jesus, and I don't even have to pay it. Jesus paid it all. You ever heard that song? It's one of my favorites. And so here you see, that God has redeemed us, so we belong to him. And not only do we belong to him, he's promised. He's promised that all of those who call on his name, from whatever generation, anywhere, who call on his name, he will indeed save. Because there is a redeemer greater than Moses who's saving a people much bigger, much larger than Israel itself. It's the nations he came for. And we are evidence of that. So all of this testifies to God, God's redemption over his people and how we, as God has made himself known as Redeemer and Lord, we now belong to him. And his faithfulness is evident for all generations to see. He keeps every promise. He takes care of every need. He redeems us when we could not redeem ourselves. And therefore, it's no problem for God's people to feast and eat Right? There's no problem for God's people to feast and eat in remembrance of God's faithfulness. Y'all remember that old saying? When it says, you know, uh, if, 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 if God, uh, Paul's writing in Corinthians, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, then you should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Right? But what God is saying here, and one of my friends puts it this way, and I love it, eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday, you were dead. That's the people of God. We celebrate today because we are no longer under the curse of sin and death. For the firstborn has come and he has redeemed his people. And now the inheritance belongs to all who follow him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word and ultimately pointing us to Jesus. May no one, no one leave this place tonight trusting in anything or anybody other than Christ Jesus our Lord, the firstborn, the redeemer of all that belong to you, Father. And so help us to look to him 
in all things, by all means. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see y'all Sunday. Sunday.